Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here. Happy Purim. Happy Purim. We are now literally entered the great holiday of Purim, which is known for its exuberant joy. In the words of the Talmud, a joy that goes beyond all structure and beyond all logic. Adaloyada is the expression. Beyond cognizance, beyond awareness, beyond consciousness. So I thought that it's appropriate that we speak about exactly that and learn some tremendous, fascinating insights into what cognizance is, what, not, what awareness is, what consciousness is, that we can learn from this, this powerful holiday. So we'll be speaking about, the topic is, how to sharpen your intuition. This program, this class, is dedicated in memory of Avram ben Ephraim. How to sharpen your intuition? Okay, let's begin with a big question. What is intuition? Is it cognitive? Is it emotional? Gut feeling? Instinct? Is it something that comes through a process of intelligence? Or is it an emotional instinct? We know it's not based on conscious reasoning, but still, where does it come from? Where does it originate from? And can we trust it? Can you trust your gut instinct? Can you trust your intuition? And above all, can we do anything to hone and improve and sharpen that intuition? Or are some of us just wired with more intuition than others? Now, this is a vital question because it addresses so much of our decision-making process. We know that whenever there's a decision to be made, then you have to, at times, apply your mind, your research, you do your due diligence, discovery, to see whether the options and to see whether it's worth engaging, worth involving, worth investing in a particular entity or not, a particular time and energy and commitment or not. <clears throat> We also rely on our emotions, our feelings. But feelings can be subjective. So we try to combine reflecting with our minds, which means objectively, dispassionately analyzing and processing without any conclusions. And then we allow our emotions to give us a sense. Do I feel that this is the right thing? Am I attracted to it? Am I repelled by it? So where does intuition fit into this? Is that an emotion, part of the emotional part of it? Or is intuition really something deeper from the subconscious that you just can't put your finger on, as you would in a conscious reasoning, but it's lying somewhere embedded in the back of your mind? And that's informing you as well. So that's what we want to address. So really what we need to do is explore and probe the inner workings of consciousness itself, the inner recesses, the deeper recesses of the mind and beyond. So I've talked about this topic from different angles in the past, but I'm going to sum it up this way. Long before Freud and long before modern psychology, the concept of a conscious versus an unconscious or subconscious 
is discussed at length in Kabbalistic texts. But I'm going to use not the word subconscious or unconscious, but rather the word superconscious. And the reason is very simple. Because consciousness is what is revealed, what we're aware of. When you say sub, it sounds like beneath, like a subterranean state, underneath the consciousness. Unconscious can also be a non-conscious state. But superconscious implies directly and implicitly that you're talking about a superstate, not a substate, a superstate. And that's very significant because does consciousness, do we start with consciousness and then we travel into the basement, into the subconscious or the non-conscious? Or does it begin the process in the superconscious state and then it enters the regular conscious state, which is what we're aware of? And of course, the latter is correct. So superconscious is a far better word. Another point is the unconscious or the subconscious in modern psychology is often associated with, especially in Freudian psychology, with the id, with the libido, with these untamed forces of pleasure, principle, sexuality, of the raw core person that's not, well, before it's regulated by ego and superego. So it has also that, that implication as well as being sub, meaning it's like hidden, it's like almost something that we don't even want to look at, it's ugly. Whereas superconscious is the exact opposite, suprastate, a state beyond conscious that then seeps in into the consciousness. And let's analyze how that works exactly. And this is taken straight from, based on texts of the Zohar, which is the classic book of Jewish mysticism, as explained by the Arizal, who's a great mystic, one of the greatest mystics, maybe the greatest in the 16th, 16th century, and as elaborated upon in the discourses of the Chabad Hasidic discourses that make it more palatable and explain it in, in more rational terms. This is an example that I use. It's not written exactly, but I think it captures it well. Let's think of a faucet, a water faucet in your sink. The water faucet is a regulator, right? It regulates the flow of water. When the faucet is closed, nothing is flowing. That doesn't mean there's no water. There is water. There's water in the pipes. There's water in the pipes going into the house, under your sink. The pipes that are connected to that, the larger arteries, all the way to the water main to the street, which in turn connects to the reservoirs that gather water, that pump water to different, all the different arteries and different um, veins and network of what the water... The water uh, infrastructure, the water skeleton, if you wish, that exists in any particular city. So when you turn on the faucet slowly, what happens is water begins to flow. When you open it up a little more, the valve opens more, it flows more. If the faucet breaks, for example, you have a leak. And it could be more than a leak, you can actually flood. <clears throat> That's a good example, not a perfect example, but a good example to understand how the superconscious interacts with the conscious. The conscious mind is a faucet. It's regulated, and the flow of ideas comes in drop by drop. If we had a rush of ideas, without any control, without any regulation, it would drive us mad. So when you have drops, it's a drop. That's why you have like a flash of an idea. It's like a flash, a drop. 
literally like that, like a flash. Where's that flash coming from? Where's that drop coming from? From a large body, sometimes some call the collective unconscious, the collective conscious, the collective unconscious. We'll call it the collective superconscious. So it's a superconscious state. The word used for it in the Kabbalistic texts is moiche or moiche or chachmestima, the hidden wisdom, the hidden intelligence, meaning it's hidden on the other side of the curtain. We only see the drop or we recognize and perceive when an idea falls into our minds, we perceive that the drop, but we don't see where the drop is coming from. All we can say is, what, where did that come from? And we recognize there must be something behind the curtain. So you have Chachma Geluya, which is revealed consciousness, and you have Chachma Stema, concealed consciousness. Concealed here really is not just concealed, it's actually supra, beyond consciousness. And there, that level itself of the superconscious, there's two states. One, that is closer to the conscious. It's just concealed, meaning it's right before it's about to be revealed. So just a matter of uh, time or a matter of effort. And then there's a concealed superconscious that's fundamentally concealed and never is accessible. So essentially, when we think of an idea and we conceive of something, it's coming from that superconscious state the higher superconscious, that then in turn turns into the lower superconscious, which in turn will send us a drop, will send us a drop of water through our faucet and regulation and regulator that allows that idea to enter into our consciousness. That's why you'll find, for example, the idea is this, that you'll find there's a very thin line between genius and madness. Genius is when the faucet is as wide as possibly open and still that we can maintain our sanity. Madness is if it opens just a drop too much and the flow is too intense. When we talk about a chemical imbalance, the chemicals in the brain, they actually are forces that compartmentalize experiences, compartmentalize ideas that don't let us get overwhelmed by a very negative trauma that completely consumes us. It compartmentalizes, it regulates like a faucet. So if the faucet is a very narrow one, so the ideas flow in a narrow way, but a genius is on the border of madness. So actually madness, in a way, is closer to reality than is sanity. Sanity is controlled reality, basically, regulated reality, so we can contain it and not be blown away and not be overwhelmed and and completely suffocated, completely submerged and flooded by its truths. That's why when someone says, I want the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, truth has to be packaged. Because it's very difficult to just have the naked truth. Sometimes it's too overwhelming. Now, package doesn't mean manipulated and it doesn't mean distorted or diluted. It just means it has to come piecemeal. Think again of the faucet. Think of raindrops. If the rain would come down in floods, it would in floods it would flood the fields and destroy them just as much as a drought would. The beauty of rain is that it's rain, but it comes down in drops so it can be slowly absorbed by the earth until the next drop comes. So it's paced properly. In love and relationships and communication, the same is true. You may have great ideas to share, but if they flow so quickly that the container, meaning the recipient, the student, the teacher, the, the student, is unable to contain it, then you have yourself a problem. That's why we need to then regulate and make sure that the process is 
is properly balanced. That's the key to all communication. And the same thing with love. Communication, if you just let it pour and pour, and you don't spoon feed it, and you don't recognize that different students and different recipients need a tailor-made and adjusted flow, you can overwhelm them. The same with love. We can suffocate people and drown them in love because it's love on our terms and not on the recipient's terms. So in the Kabbalistic terminology, that's, the energies have to be contained in the containers. You pour a pitcher of water slowly into a cup. You don't just pour it because it'll over, it, it may not only won't fill the cup, the cup will be completely empty because it'll overwhelm the entire container. <clears throat> so this flow of superconsciousness to consciousness needs to be regulated. And that regulation includes a concealment that we are not in touch directly with what is going on behind the curtain. But it's still always sitting there because that's where all consciousness comes from. So with that in mind, then let's talk about the conscious now and the superconscious. So conscious understanding of things, as I said, conscious reasoning is when you sit down, you use your mind, you analyze, you process, you try to figure out how something functions, something works, and you do as much due diligence as you need. Where are you really, where is the mind accessing? The mind is really accessing superconscious energy or superconscious intelligence, but it, as I said, it has to flow step, step by step, drop by drop. Then there's the next step. After you process, intelligently you say, okay, now in the healthy process, I objectively researched this. I objectively have come to the conclusion this is good. And now you let your emotions come into play and the emotions, the heart, says, you know something? I'm listening to what my mind is, my reflective mind is telling me. I'm not just acting impulsively, which is the nature of emotions. The impulses are now being guided and directed like a captain of a ship is guiding the ship and the experience. Now the emotions feel comfortable to now experience it. Because remember, in the mind, it's a process. It's a computer. It's a machine. The emotions experience so here you have it. The superconscious is behind the scenes, the two levels I spoke about, the one that is completely, always remains concealed, and the next level is the one that is just concealed from the conscious. <clears throat> then the conscious leads to an emotional experience where you experience it to the fullest sense. You love it, you bond with it, you connect with it, you commit to it. That's the healthy process. Just as an example Going back to the two levels of superconscious, one classic example given in the Hasidic discourses is the difference between a flintstone and a uh, hot coal. Both of them have the power to light and ignite a fire. What's the difference? A hot coal, a white hot coal, you may not know there's fire there because it's not obvious. It's inside the coal. But if you fan it, or God forbid you touch it, you know very well there's fire. And, and you take that hot coal, put it into water, it will extinguish the coal. A flintstone, you can put it into water and it won't affect it. You can fan it, you can touch it, no fire. But if you strike it with exertion, with effort, that's when you get a spark out of it. So that is called a concealment that doesn't, is not... Does, that it's concealed in a state that does not yet have substantial existence. And the flame within the hot coal is considered the superconscious that is just concealed from the revealed state. And revealed consciousness is the 
coal that, that is flaming coal that we're conscious of and we can sense and be warmed by and be, um, and be touched by. So there you have those levels. And then comes, of course, the emotions is the experience. So let's take this now back to intuition. <clears throat> but before I do that, let me talk about Purim. I mentioned the statement in the Talmud. Very strange statement. Usually you would think that consciousness, being aware and conscious and cognizant, is the greatest thing possible. And yet there comes Purim. It says that the mitzvah is, the command is, to become intoxicated to the point where you cannot discern, you cannot distinguish between the cursed Haman and the blessed Mordechai. The cursing of Haman and the blessing of Mordechai. Why would that be a, uh, an achievement? Why would that be even a, something we aspire to? Because the point here is not about that good and evil become equal. It's that you become in a state of the zone where you're not conscious of it. Because consciousness itself is a, as I mentioned, a limited state. There's a subject and there's an object. The person is understanding an idea. You and the idea are not the same. But when you become so connected with something, the subject and object melt into each other, that's what's called being in the zone. Athletes talk about it, writers talk about it, musicians talk about it, everyone talks about it. You can't always assure yourself to be in the zone, but when you are, you seize sensing that you're there. You're con- not even conscious of your consciousness. It just flows. Sometimes you're up all night, very immersed in something you're excited about. You don't even realize what time it is that you're tired and hungry. And then suddenly you become aware. You sit down at a computer, you want to type something. I speak from experience. You're writing, it's difficult. So then there comes that flow. So it opens up. And you don't even feel your fingers. You're just typing. The flow of consciousness is coming through you. That is essentially super consciousness speaking to consciousness and not allowing the self-consciousness to take, to take hold. Because as soon as you're aware of it, you're already out of that magic. You're out of that magical zone. So when you talk about Adaloyada, Yada meaning consciousness, awareness, cognizant. Yes, that's important to be, because you don't want to be unconscious, and you don't want to be um, ignorant, and you don't want to be in confused state. But that is lower than consciousness. We're talking about, however, what about if you want to reach your consciousness should elevate to a state of superconscious? That's Purim. Now, why Purim? Because Purim was a transformation from darkness to light. It was a day where total genocide almost took place. Total. It was 127 nations in the empire, the Persian Empire of Achashverosh. And Haman, like Hitler, wanted to destroy them all. And he actually had the decree that every Jew, man, woman, and child would be destroyed. And it was reversed. The power of reversal, the power of transformation allows us to access states of superconsciousness. That's the, the story. Let's go back to the analogy I gave. When you have a coal, when you have a flame, an obvious flame, it's, a, it's powerful. A flame gives off warmth and heat and illuminates. But to a certain extent, when a flame is able to access so-called the hidden flame within the coal, it's even more powerful. When it's able to access the superconscious state, like within the Flintstone, it's accessing a certain type of infinity, a, a never-ending, incessant form of superconsciousness. But there, the only way to get there is through striking the stone. There has to be some type of shock 
some type of trauma. That trauma brings out the best. It could also bring out the worst. Purim was traumatic. It wasn't just another day. It was really serious. And they were at the brink of the abyss. But that transformation, once it transformed, what happened? It drew down from the deepest levels to the point that it's compared, Yom Kippur is compared to Purim. Yom Kippurim. Kippurim means like Purim, says the Tikkuni Zohar. Tikkuni Zohar is an addendum to the Zohar. Like Purim. Why? Because Yom Kippur is also a day like that, that you go beyond rational. Like angels, we go beyond the human. And Purim is even greater in a sense because Purim we do that even with a meal. And Yom Kippur it's only through abstaining and refraining from material involvement, including meals and eating and drinking and so on. <clears throat> so without going into the details, Purim is named, Purim comes from Goiro. The word Pur, as we read in the Megillah, tonight and tomorrow, Pur in Persian, ancient Persian means Goro, which means lots. Because Haman threw lots to determine what day he would choose for the total genocide, God forbid. So why would you call a holiday by the name of Lot? Just because Haman threw Lot? You can call it so many other names. Because Lot captures the essence of superconsciousness. When you throw Lot, it's not rational. It's not you sit down and reasonable say, I'm designating what day is the best day that I'm going to accomplish something. In this case, unfortunately, accomplish something horrible. Here he threw Lot because he wanted to access a state that was higher than conscious. And when it fell in the month of Adar, he was elated, Haman, because he knew that was the month when Moses passed away. So he felt it was his lucky day. He threw lots. It could have been any month, and it came out the month of Moses' death, Moses' passing. Bad omen for the Jews. But he didn't know that it was also the month and the same day that Moses was born. So lots represent a type of superconscious experience. It could be in very negative ways, where you say, you know what? I don't just want to destroy them. I want to access levels that are even beyond consciousness because Mohammed was not a fool. He knew the Jewish people were protected. He knew what happened to Pharaoh. He knew what happened to those that preceded him in trying to destroy Jews. They were not successful. So he wanted to access that higher level, as the Kabbalists put it, it's called the makif, the transcendent and level of energy, not imminent energy which we can access through conscious, reasonable methodology and strategy. He wanted to access that power, which is also why he built a gallows of 50 amas, 50 cubits. 50 is like the 50 gates of understanding. The 50th gate is superconscious. As the Talmud says, 50 gates were given to the world, but only 49 are accessible. And Moses, even Moses cannot reach the 50th. Until when he passed away, he went up on the mountain of Voi, which in Hebrew is Nun, nun Beis Vov, meaning 50 within it. He gained the 50th gate. So he built a, a gallows for Mordechai, 50, 50 cubits, because, because Haman was a sorcerer. He understood mysticism, and he understood the power, and he wanted to use it for the most... <clears throat> for, for the most um, uh, for his most evil plans and most evil plot, most salacious ways. And then it was reversed. And when it was reversed, everything, that 50 cubit became the gallows of Haman. That poor, that girdle, that superconscious state became the power that transformed 
and transformation that transforms darkness to light is much greater than regular light. It's greater than conscious light. It's superconscious light. Superconscious states, and hence pur, the state of the lot, purim in the state of a higher than conscious state that we can access, lo yoda, a state that's beyond consciousness, superconsciousness, to the point where it transcends everything dark and light and can transform even darkness to light. So the Talmud isn't telling us that we shouldn't be able to distinguish between good and evil. It's telling us we're coming to a place where you can transform even evil because you're beyond the structure of good and evil. And that's what the mitzvah is. So Purim is really access, is accessing superconsciousness. So let's bring it now back to intuition and how it impacts our lives. Very straightforward, very simple. Intuition is actually the bridge between superconscious and conscious and between conscious and emotional. So my question I asked earlier, is it emotional or cognitive? It's both. It is beyond conscious reasoning is when you sit down and you calculate and you come to a mathematical or scientific or some other logical conclusion about whatever it is that you are researching. Intuition, we call the gut feeling, the instinct. But we're talking about an informed instinct, not just an intuition. Where is that coming from? That's coming that the consciousness is able to sense something from the superconscious. And it's also able to sense it, the emotion, an emotional instinct is also able to sense it. When is that healthy and, pos- and, and works well? When you have the flow the way I described it. If you just go with your own passions and say, hey, I like something, I'm drawn to it, and you're not using your conscious mind, then most likely your intuitions and your gut instincts and, and, um, will also be compromised. That doesn't mean they don't work. But when you are able to have what is the most important step of all, bittel, the ability to, to strip, to, um, to suspend yourself and your ego, to reach a truth that's greater than yourself, then the channel of the superconscious from the highest superconscious travels through the lower superconscious that travels into the conscious and then is, is expressed in an emotion and a feeling driven not just by consciousness, but by consciousness informed by superconscious. That would be called the intuition part. Now, you could have intuition without a conscious state. You could just say, I sense something is right about something. But you always want to make sure. So you always want to look into it a little more. The instinct and the intuition doesn't go away. So the intuition is essentially a glimpse into the superconscious telling you and informing the conscious there's something here. Sometimes you can go by that. Sometimes you need to check it, all depending how evolved you are, which is what we're going to speak about now. Because now the question is, what can we do anything to sharpen and hone our intuition? And based on this, absolutely. Absolutely. But it requires this type of what I said, this type of bitl. If you're going to say, you know what, just give me three, five, three, four, five steps how to hone my intuition so I should be more intuitive. If it's ego-driven or it's just success-driven, it's not going to work. Because that doesn't open up the door. That's not a key. Arrogance or even self-awareness and self-interest, I should say, is not a key to opening up the secret, mysterious doors of the superconscious. What is? Humility. Humility. Humility is striking yourself, like striking the Flintstone and pushing aside your crass ego, your outer layers of, of that are intrigued by something or really want something and you're driven 
to be humble. And as humility takes over, the superconscious speaks to you. And it speaks through a healthy intuition. So the key to honing and improving and sharpening intuition is, frankly, humility. Humility that allows you to allow, that allows you to access the channels behind the faucet, to widen those channels, and to allow more to flow in. Sometimes will come in the appearance of an idea, but sometimes even deeper in an instinct, a resonating sense of truth. And that's why the way the Kabbalists and the Hasidic masters explain this is they say Chachma. Well, I should explain. I mentioned Chachma before. But Chachma bin Adas are the three conscious states, the three, I should say, the three stages of conscious intelligence, the cognitive process. Chachma is the drops that I mentioned before, the flash that comes from the superconscious, the faucet. Bina develops. So a faucet is a drop, or even more than a drop, a little flow, but it's not a river. Bina is the width, the width and the expanse of a river, takes the drop and develops it into a full-blown idea. And das is the conclusion where you connect, where you relate, where you're ready to act, where you're ready to emote. So let's now think of the process. Chachma, as opposed to Bina, Bina understands, so it's, it has to be about you. You must be conscious. You cannot understand something if you're not conscious. Chachma is a bridge between conscious and superconscious because Chachma says, I got an idea, but I don't fully understand it yet. As a matter of fact, what dominates is the awe, the wow. Chachma is the letters koyachma, the power of what? What? What was that? You ever have that type of profound pleasure where you have a serious problem, you have a dilemma, and then an idea drops into your head. There's a certain, like, a certain flash, a certain euphoria consumes you. That's coming from that superconscious state that entered through a drop, but only through a drop. Bina, I understand. Chachma is the idea is being understood. Chachma focuses on the truth, the resonating truth of the idea. Whereas Bina is focusing on I understand. Not, or sometimes we can say, Chachma, the idea consumes you. Or I should say, the idea intrigues, it, it, the idea consumes you, encompasses you, and being is you encompassing the idea, you absorbing the idea. So the you is more significant than being. It's necessary for the integrative process, but for the truth, and sometimes compared to also visualization, the resonating truth, it's almost like you see the idea, that's Chochmah. Being is you hear the idea. So when you, someone tells you, let's say, they saw a beautiful sight, a beautiful painting, a beautiful natural sight, natural um, event, and you were not there. So when you see it, you see the whole thing in one shot, and you may not even understand it. And then you can start analyzing piece by piece, but the seeing is a certain resonating power. Seeing is believing. You say you had to see it. What about when you relate it and you tell the story well? You can relate the narrative to somebody. So there, as good as you do, will never have the resonance of this as someone who sees it. But you have something else. When you have to tell it, you tell it piece by piece by piece. So it's much more understandable. Seeing can lead to a state of awe and they say, I don't even understand what I saw. When you have to explain it or describe it and depict it, you go detail by detail by detail. So Bina is the details lead to the big picture. And Chochmah, the big picture, leads to the details. 
And that big picture is informed by the superconscious. And what opens up the door? Humility. The effort, the exertion of humility. And intuition is what enters into this conscious, that resonating sense of truth. That's not just I reasonably understand it, but I sense, I feel, it resonates that it's right. The gut instinct. That in turn is developed by being into a full case, but it has to always retain the resonance of Chachmah. That through Das will then become an emotion where you experience a true idea. You experience a truth. You experience it. So that's the process. So how do you hone and sharpen that? By opening those channels. The more humility, the more you're focused on the truth of the idea. Not that I understood it, but the idea is true, which is ultimately real wisdom. It's not about me understanding. It's not an ego trip. It's not a mind game. It's about that you have the honor and you're blessed with the opportunity to recognize a higher truth. Because take away the mind, we would be emotional creatures completely subject to impulses. Our intelligence would be there to satisfy our emotions, to hunt, to preserve ourselves, preserve our young, and so on. But being that we have a mind, and a mind that can be an objective mind, that can rise above our needs and our survival, which distinguishes us from the plain animal, that allows us to what? To recognize a higher truth. That wisdom is actually leading you to a place that's beyond your subjectivity. And then that higher truth comes back and informs your emotions. So there you have it. The process is quite straightforward, and this is the formula. And it's, of course, a Purim-related formula because that's what Purim is about. Accessing those superconscious states, channeling it into our consciousness, and therefore becoming better decision-makers, having more alacrity and clarity in our, in our intuition, sharper and more sensitive intuition, and ultimately our decision-making process affecting our own lives, our relationships, and everything that's happening around us when it's going in this direction. So ultimately, where is reality? Reality is in the superconscious. That's reality. It's beyond the structures that we know. We don't really have access to it directly. The fact that some people have induced through psychedelics and other means access, even if you were to say it has some access, but it's not sustainable. That's why it's so difficult to uh, be grounded after that. The sustainable way is when you know how to access it naturally and naturally through humility through recognizing and wanting to be a channel for a higher truth. And when you are able to do that, then the flow begins to, the energy begins to flow into you, into your being, into, into being internalized and being experienced. And Purim is, in a sense, the day of the year when we're able to achieve that. We're able to reach that level. So this is truthfully accessible to everybody at any time. But there's the big prerequisite. You can't want it too much. Because if you want it too much and your want dominates, then your sense block off the door. You ever see the things that you experience only when you allow it to emerge? If you try to grab it and pull it, it becomes elusive. The more you grab it, the more it eludes you. The less you grab it, the more you create an environment to allow it in, the more it becomes part of you. So we have to... Re- we have to we have to resist the temptation of trying to own it, to trying to hold it. 
truth, love, soul, God. Everything of the, all, all real things in life are not owner, own, are not subject to ownership. They all emerge and they all come through a process. You do the right things, you water the garden, you weed it, you nurture and cultivate it, the flowers begin to emerge. Same thing with ourselves and with our superconscious. It's there, waiting. But the way to do it is to put yourself aside. I want to channel a higher truth. And then what happens, you get into that zone where it just flows seamlessly. And you cannot distinguish between yourself and the idea flowing through you. Just an example that everybody can relate to. You ever been absorbed reading a book? You're so absorbed you don't even know you're turning pages. You don't even know you're reading words. You can cry, laugh, and be completely consumed, completely absorbed. What's happening? You've lost sense of self, and now you've been encompassed, engulfed in the experience, like literally immersing yourself in water. And the story, the narrative, is completely encircled you, where you don't sense yourself, and you allow the story just to carry you. That's why we find the expression in the book of Isaiah, that in the future, the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Okay, filled with divine knowledge is beautiful. What's the emphasis on waters cover the sea? Because that's what happens in water. A fish in water is a fish, it's a creature. However, it's a creature that's completely submerged in its source, in its root, in its source of life, its life source. It does never know, it never feels that it's separate from its life source. We on land can convince ourselves we're separate, that we're independent entities. But we are all truly submerged in a higher truth, except we don't see it. We only see what's on this side of the faucet, not on that side of the curtain. We want to see it, we want to access it, so what you have to do is get yourself out of the way. You move yourself out of the way. Purim, layada. You move your knowledge and intelligence and all your methodologies and strategies and all your machinations and manipulations and everything you use to maneuver, all your maneuvering, then what happens? A deeper truth emerges and it takes hold of you and you allow it to seep through you. That's what happens. It's a tremendous experience. We wish we could bottle it and hold on to it, but you have to just let it be. Literally like going underwater and just allowing yourself to be submerged. That's the point. And that's the power. And then you come to realize it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about a higher truth that we have the privilege, the, the blessing, the gift to channel. So each of us is born with our unique soul, with our unique contribution, indispensable mission to accomplish in this world. We have all the resources we need from the emotions to the conscious to the superconscious to the super superconscious. But we have to do our part. And our part is the humility necessary to recognize you're here not to satisfy your own needs. You're not here to just have pleasure, to have fun, to live day-to-day instant gratification. Now the greatest fun is getting beyond yourself, allowing those higher truths to channel through you. That's what you have to ask yourself all the time. And especially on a holiday like Purim. So the joy of Purim, which is a joy joy beyond structure. What's the joy? That's the greatest joy. Not a joy, I am happy. I'm doing something that gives me joy. A joy that you become an extension of the archetype of the entity, the energy called joy. You're not just a joyous person. You are joy reincarnate. 
incarnate. You're a personified joy. You're a joy that's being channeled through your arms and legs, through your singing song. Whenever you say, hear a song, and you're like, let's say you put on the headset, and you're completely consumed by a song, it's exactly like being consumed under the, uh, and submerged in water. You're not listening to the song. You're not part of the song. The song is channeling through you. You are now like essentially a, a, um, an earpiece of the song, a channel, a microphone, a uh, use whatever analogy you like. <clears throat> and it's amazing that experience because you get out of yourself and you now become part of something greater and that is fulfilling your purpose and your calling and yes, the more you do that the more you hone and sharpen your intuition and the, your higher states of super consciousness to the point that it becomes part of your reality day-to-day reality yes, your conscious state is informed by it your sharper consciousness sharper emotions, more accurate, more truthful, and more what you need, not what you think you need. More giving you a fulfilling life of realizing your deepest purpose. And everyone should have only revealed joy in everything you do. God should bless you. And we're here every Wednesday at 8.30. And of course, it's archived. You can access it anytime. Please share, comment, Send us your suggestions, your thoughts, meaningfullife.com, and as well as help us continue this great work by donating generously, especially on a day like this, Purim, by sponsoring a program like this or other programs. And you just simply go to meaningfullife.com slash donate or meaningfullife.com slash sponsorship. Thank you so much and be blessed. Happy Purim.